Welcome to another Voices episode of Voices to Votes, the podcast of the Princeton Voter Drive. In this episode, Matt gives us his perspective on gay rights, education in prison, and he signed for the DC Women's March. It was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, childish, and playful, right? <laughs> but also somewhat like gay and insulting. This is our story and yours. So please stay with us. Matt is a graduate student in the molecular biology program at Princeton. Right. Uh, what year are you, Matt? Uh, G four. Where in the world did you grow up? Uh, yeah, good question. Born in Delaware, went up through elementary school in Delaware, and then parents have career ADD. And so my mom jumped on the State Department at the end of my elementary school career. Um, career. It was, it, was an, it was a good career. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, first post was Dominican Republic for three years, Santo Domingo. Uh, that was middle school and starting high school. And then finished up high school in South Africa for two, two years. So. so most of your life, you traveled around the... I, yeah, most of my formidable years, I traveled around, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, you know, in terms of raw years, I spent the most time in Delaware. Family still has property there. It's what we call home. Um, right. I came back to Delaware for college for, at the University of Delaware. How big is your family? Uh, I'm number three of four uh, children, and that's, that's the immediate family. And then my dad comes from a big Roman Catholic family. Hmm. So your entire family moved around during this period? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, pretty much, except my older brother, who had just went off to college as we were embarking on this overseas adventure. And of course, the one younger than me got two more posts than I did. Right. Um, Mozambique and then uh, Vienna. So, yeah. And then, of course, the best part was, like, as a grad student, um, my dad was posted in Amsterdam, or not a grad student, excuse me, undergrad. My dad was posted in Amsterdam, and my mom was in Vienna, so it was like, nice. <laughs> you gotta, gotta, gotta go between the, the yeah. two. Uh, it's like, shit, I gotta go see my parents, you know? <laughs> in Amsterdam. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a good, uh, good gig. So your dad is a diplomat as well? Yeah, he followed suit after my mom joined. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what were their roles in right. the um, State Department? So my mom has been a nurse her whole life and the State Department employs nurses and nurse practitioners at this point. A nurse practitioner, she had gone back to school. As the medical officers that run embassy medical units, Mm -hmm. Um, so each embassy has its own little medical unit to serve the embassy community. And uh, that was her role. And then my dad jumped on as sort of like a just general purpose foreign service officer. Um, Huh. Yeah. Um, And he's sort of done a whole bunch of stuff since. Since leaving the state bar? Well, no, no, since, since joining, right? I mean, oh, okay. Yeah, no, he joined, um, whatever, 13 or 14 years ago at this point. Okay. And, um, you know, as a general purpose guy, they, they, they sort of moved him around a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right now he does mostly console work, you know? Like, uh, you know, the, the extreme vetting, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so growing up uh, in these foreign countries, what sort of schools did you go to? I'm pretty sure every foreign country has an American school. Mm-hmm. 
at the least it has some kind of foreign school. You know, if it's a former British colony, there's going to be a lot of British schools. And so that's where the embassy sends the children of their employees. And that's where I got sent um, to these private, what are called American schools that teach an American curriculum, either AP or IB, when you mm-hmm. start getting up to the high school level. And that sort of gears you to apply for American colleges and be competitive. Um, yeah. yeah. So what sort of students are in these American schools? Are yeah. they all diplomats? No, then that's a good thing, I would say. Yeah, uh, you know, it's maybe 20% diplomat. What I've noticed is that in Latin America and in Asia, it's mostly wealthy nationals of that country. And then in the instance of South Africa and former British colonies, because the British private school system is considered like the most superior, the American school system tends to be just sort of a hodgepodge of like American citizens coming abroad and locals and some Europeans um, who want to send their kids off to America, for example. So, so yeah, so South Africa, Dominican Republic was kind of shitty in that way because it was like a bunch of like really just uber, uber wealthy um, Dominicans, you know? Right. Um, yeah, sort of uncomfortable scene for like a, like semi-rural upbringing Delawarean. <laughs> right. So it's literally really, really rich locals and a couple of white kids. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and we uh, sort of banded together as the American diplomats kids. Um, right. And got up to all kinds of American mischief, like skateboarding and, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the like. But South Africa was great because it was a big, it was a big melting pot. Do you think you consider yourself an American after all of this? Like, oh, totally, 100%. Yeah. Even more so, right? I mean, yeah. the, the mission of an embassy is to espouse the American, I don't know what word I want to use, but like American ideals at the very right. least um, overseas. And on a practical level, they're there to offer essentially consulting advice on how Americans do this or that technologically or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so so and that was um, that was conveyed to us as yeah. the dependence of employees of the State Department. Yeah, you know, you're here representing America. Don't right. Even you as a kid. Oh, absolutely. that's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We had huh. this sort of like training that we went to in DC. Uh, as a a kid in uh, middle school, you went to a training right. saying how you should represent yourself as American. Pretty much voluntary training. How do you represent yourself as American? Like. What, what do they teach you? Most of it is, is practical information about how to convey oneself in... It, it's kind of like a very expedited version of finishing school, actually. Uh-huh. Um, like, we had table settings and shit like this. So that was it. And then there was a security component, like, what to do if you think you're in a bad situation. And then the last bit, which is what you were asking about, is it, it, they just basically gave you the general rule that you're representing American citizenry mm-hmm. and therefore like just be on your best behavior. <laughs> like <laughs> Right. Like don't go out there and like start a red scare or something like right. that. You right, know, right. but just like just be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alright. So uh, are there any minority groups that you self identify with? Oh, oh my god, okay. I'm gay. 
But I say this. I have a story behind that because <laughs> because I don't know if I necessarily identify with that as a minority group because I I understand that it is in the statistical sense a minority yeah. group. Yeah. But it's also one of those things that is not external. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's very much a gray area. And the story behind that is I was living in a house with a light-skinned woman of Mexican descent mm-hmm. and another gay man. And we were discussing what we were looking for in the incoming roommate. Because we had you know, many candidates right. to interview. Yeah. And Where was this, by the way? This was in D.C. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like outside of D.C. in Bethesda. So the, the 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 gay roommate of mine, Jer, you know, makes this claim. He's like, I kind of want to just keep this house all minority, if that's okay. <laughs> and I had to like, I had to ask for a clarification. I was like, What the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, so he's kind of the fuck. Um, I was like, He's like, Well, we're both gay, and Grace over here, you know, she's Mexican. She's Mexican. And I'm like, Outwardly, we all look very white and act very white. So right. I, you know, I don't. So you know, take it with that. That that's my level of self identification. Right. Right. <laughs> Not minority in the in the ethnic sense, but like. Or, or not even in the day-to-day uh, identified sense, right? I see. You know, there are very militant gay men out there. Um, uh-huh. And you don't consider yourself to be one? Well, I, if it's a scale, then I consider myself to be more on less, <laughs> less right. on the, like, you know, right. rainbow every day, kind of. What do you do for your day job? I am a researcher. Yeah. I research cell division. And that process of one cell going to two is how we go from sperm and egg to complex baby. And it's also a hallmark of diseases like cancer and not having it is a hallmark of complement of diseases like atrophy and dystrophy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the way we study this process is we actually take eggs and from a particular animal that lays a lot of eggs, it's it's a type of frog. And um, we use that source material to watch the process of cell division at a very high N, because N meaning N meaning number of numbers of divisions, right? Mm-hmm. Because you get thousands of eggs, yeah, and you can watch them all divide simultaneously, mm-hmm. and you can you can start start building some very robust statistical frameworks around. How often does cell division fail? How often does it succeed? And, yeah. and, for, and for what reasons? And mostly we, do, we take a, what is considered like a genetic approach where mm-hmm. we, you know, we think something's important for cell division and we get rid of it or we add more of it. Mm-hmm. And see how that changes the yeah. cells right. dividing or its uh, right. error rate and right. stuff right. like that. Right. I mean, a good, a good real world example is sort of our favorite protein to study is, is really upright. There's, there's tons of it in cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Okay. Normally this protein is very low level in the adult and it gets into this idea that cancer is sort of a rampant cell division, uncontrolled cell division. And so mm-hmm. we study that protein towards the end of understanding how to uh, stop it mm-hmm. in the case of that disease. Huh. Very interesting. So, a little background. Matt and I and Sagar and Eva actually went to the DC's Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration. Is that right? Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about your sign, Matt? 
Oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, we sort of came up with our signs on the on the day of. But mine was a dinosaur, a stegosaurus, <laughs> with a rainbow <laughs> in the background. In the background, and it said "science, bitches." <laughs> it was brilliant, actually. Obviously, you feel strongly about science, right? Right. What does that sign tell the world? What are you trying to say with a dinosaur with rainbows in the background? It uh, <laughs> says "science, bitches." <laughs> It was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, childish, and playful, right? <laughs> but also somewhat, like, gay and insulting. <laughs> right? All children love dinosaurs. Everybody loves rainbows. <laughs> it could have just as easily said, come on, science. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's... It, we... What I wanted to say with that was we shouldn't have to justify an empirical pursuit of knowledge. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so that was my attempt at satirizing that concept. Do you personally believe that because Trump is elected in this mm -hmm. election, that there is a attack on scientific method, or the scientific method is under threat? Right. Um, I don't think the scientific method itself is directly under threat. Right. Aspects of the scientific method are under attack. The most important one is critical thinking, mm -hmm. and. I think Trump succeeds by simple messages, and science has come. The science is the opposite. What do you think is a good way to assail back these simplistic ways of thinking and mm -hmm. build a country that allows for more critical thinking within its populace? I think we should be going further than where we were before Trump, first and foremost. And I have thought about this because you know education is something I'm very interested in. Yeah. I think we need to bring debate back into mm -hmm. into the fold, into the milieu of <laughs> of, of 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 people's inter daily interactions with each other, right? I mean, you could say, oh, we need to improve K through twelve education, and we need yeah. policy changes, and you could say all these things. I, I and and I don't want to discredit those. I think I think formal education is is super critical, mm -hmm. but I think if we if we can somehow promote debate as a component of our interpersonal communications mm -hmm. better. And I don't know how you do that because I guess what's what the counter to that is that people have become so pigeonholed and all of that. And right. I see the world at echo chamber, we live in echo chambers and stuff like that. So, uh, so maybe break open those echo chambers. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, on first principles, I think we need to debate more as a people. And, and, <laughs> and I guess, what that implies is that people should keep an open mind about what they ought to believe in, right? Yeah. Instead of coming into a discussion with your mind already made up. Okay. There's, there's something different about having a debate on an issue and basically talking past each other. Uh, so you talked a little bit about education as, as something that you care about. What are some of the other big topic issues that really matter to you? Uh, healthcare is a huge one, mm -hmm. and criminal justice would probably be the second. You want to talk a little bit about your stance on healthcare? Um, right, so I'm in favor of a single-payer system. And nationally. Nationally, yeah. The privatization of healthcare is moral evil, mm. in my opinion. And beyond that, there are many practical gains to have associated with single-payer and 
having grown up over this is where it's personal having grown up overseas and witnessed the success of single payer firsthand um, especially through the work that my mom does which yeah. is essentially to go to local hospitals inspect them and say this is as good as an American hospital we can send Americans here or it's not as good or it's better or mm-hmm. whatever and what she took away from that process was that you know the socialized hospitals in Vienna were awesome <laughs> <laughs> you know got straight A's on essentially an American rubric so I believe that it works and I'm a proponent of the benefits that come along with it such as the reduction in administrative costs and all of that yeah Healthcare is not something that we actually have discussed a lot on this program. Oh, yeah. No. Um, and t- to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that you can put a price on somebody's life. Right. Like, right. Well, and, and single payer systems do do that. Mm. They say this is how much we're willing to take out of our communal pot to pay for you if you have a chronic disease mm-hmm. that needs treatment every year. And that number is around $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And that covers a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that covers most of it, basically, in terms of the spectrum of diseases that one could be afflicted with. Right. Mm-hmm. Presumably, the health care costs are lower. Why is worrying? Right, right, right. Precisely, precisely, precisely. Um, I, I can't think of an exception to that on the top of my head. You know, right. it covers dialysis, for example, right. if you have end-state kidney failure or whatever, whatever. But on top of that, you can then pay for more, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing's stopping you from opting to pay for better treatment if you think that's somewhere where you want to invest your money. But I'm really a fan philosophically and politically of the idea that the uh, that the state and that's the that's the whole point of government is Mm -hmm. to basically set a baseline living standard, um, and so that they, they do that for health, and then you may go on to exceed that with your own funds if you see, see fit. Right. Yeah. So you, you also mentioned that you care a lot about the criminal justice system. Actually, I, I ran into you yesterday, right? Yeah. At the meeting for divestment of Princeton's investment funds from private prison corporation. And you want to you wanna talk a little bit about why you care about this issue? where you're coming from on this? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so uh, this gets back to what we were talking about, about uh, coming up overseas. Yeah. Um, and these American values that I was instructed to espouse overseas were the central one was liberty. Mm-hmm. And to my shock and dismay, when I got back to the States, I found out that you know all of these really ugly, jaw-dropping statistics surrounding the level of incarceration in the United mm-hmm. States. 5% of the world's population, 25% of the incarcerated population, mm-hmm. um, 2.3 million people incarcerated. If you're a black male, you have a one in three chance of spending time in prison in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, whatever, I have 700 friends on Facebook. Um, yeah. None of them have ever been incarcerated. Um, so to, to know that there's an entire subsection of the population where it, it's, it's essentially a third of your group um, yeah, uh, and then on top of that, the really scary one is one in nine black males will spend more than half their life in prison. So there have been a couple of those moments in my since returning to the United States mm-hmm. where I've been at a complete loss to justify that this is happening in my country 
and I had, while living overseas, basically been lying. You know, I basically felt like right. Colin Powell at the UN. <laughs> yeah. Holding up that vial. I was like, no, no, America's great. America's fucking great. You guys are, you know, I, I really did this a lot in the Dominican because I was unhappy there because there yeah. were all these rich kids. Um, <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like America's great you know you guys have corrupt governments and yeah like, and like you know you treat haitians like shit and like <laughs> you know right. all, you know racism is rampant here you know america right. amazing and, right like, you just throw these haitians in jail and like, right you know with with no trial and then they go back to this and then, oh my god it's orders of magnitude worse um, <laughs> <laughs> you know i laugh about it which is like, what is it you know, yeah. that was like, that was like, oh my gosh. And then it became more personal as I tried to reconnect with some of my friends mm-hmm. who I had left in middle school and found out that some of them were incarcerated. Um, and um, it, this is in, in the United States? In Delaware, yeah. yeah exactly. okay. You know, I come from like a pretty small rural area of Delaware. Yeah. Um, there was this fundamental disconnect between my vision of America and the reality. Mm-hmm. And I put it upon myself to resolve that discrepancy yeah. um, or at least aid in resolving that. Yeah. It's, it's just something ironic about <laughs> like you discovering what liberty is being outside of America <laughs> when <laughs> the people inside America preach it as if it's this core value that everybody here shares. Right. But it takes an outsider to realize that maybe that's not the way it is. And non-Americans love to hate on America. I like to better term. Right. Right? I mean, it's inherent in being the wealthiest nation in the world. It's going to draw some, some level of envy. And, and, you know, the Iraq war is happening during this time. And I was sort of grasping for something about America to defend. And, yeah. You know, the land of liberty, right? Yeah. Um, God, yeah. So, so yeah, it's still... I still feel that scar. <laughs> in um, in diplomatic State Department parlance, it's called reverse culture shock. What is reverse culture shock? It's, it's when the... you when you come home and you're shocked by your own country. Yeah. It's legitimate. <laughs> what did you do about it? You know, I didn't do anything for a long time. I was a I was a big proponent of ending the death penalty, and I did marches on that in throughout. Undergrad, in retrospect, I mean, that might not have been the best idea, right? Like, let me, you know, keep that person alive so that they can live a a shitty life. Yeah. (laughs) The shittiest possible life. To be clear, do you support or don't support the death penalty? I know. I haven't haven't given it enough thought. I have to think about it for a couple of hours, actually. I think it's a really hard thing to say I condone the notion that someone deserves to die at the state, at the hand of the state. But, but when you stack it against what um, their life is in, in solitary, it becomes a sort of question of euthanasia at that point. Yeah. Um, as is really dark as that sounds. <laughs> so you did march against the death penalty. For right. You know, little things, you know, the fledgling, civically engaged American. And so I did a little bit, a little bit, I would say, very, very little um, before I got to Princeton. And when I got here, I started teaching inside. That's the big thing Mm -hmm. that I do now. Where do you teach? Which prison? I currently teach at two prisons. I teach at uh, Fort Dix FCI, Federal Penitentiary, and uh, Albert C. Wagner Youth Facility. And by youth, we mean 18 to 35. Mm -hmm. What do those acronyms mean? Uh, FCI. FCI Federal Corrections Institute. And the other one? 
Uh, Albert C. Wagner is just the guy's name. Oh, um, okay. It's called, yeah, they call it ACW. ACW. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very small prison outside yeah. of Trenton. Okay. Um, New Jersey has, I want to say, seven state prisons. Okay. Um, and I've taught at uh, four, four of them. Yeah. Me. Princeton teaches at five. I've taught at four of the five. And mm-hmm. what are these youth facilities? The youth facilities are uh, inmates or incarcerated persons aged 18 to 35. Youth. I always clarify, yeah, because they're not juvenile. Yeah, one should be younger than eighteen. People in those facilities are adults. Yeah, but they're yeah. they're just young men. Yeah, and all of these are are men's only. That's correct. There's one women's only facility. Um, okay, it's Edmund Mann, and uh, we teach it. That's the one I have not taught at through our Princeton uh, teaching initiative. So, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Princeton Teaching Initiative? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's the Prison Teaching Initiative yeah, at Princeton. Sorry. And it's a uh, all-volunteer organization. Well, it's a mostly volunteer organization. We do have a part-time administrator in which we teach college courses for credit in New Jersey state prisons as well as the one uh, federal prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're made up of 75 instructors drawn from the community, uh, mostly graduate students, postdocs, and faculty members here at mm-hmm. Princeton. And each year we reach over 200 uh, students, mm-hmm. um, teaching them classes ranging from the humanities to the, to the sciences, the hard sciences. Uh, as long as you get clearance, you can go inside and teach. All you have to have is a master's in whatever you're teaching. Okay. Yeah. So what do you teach? I teach currently two biology classes, two intro survey mm-hmm. biology classes. And in the past, I've taught environmental science and statistics mm-hmm. and other things. So what are the people inside these prisons like? Are they mostly minorities? What would you say the racial makeup is? Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I should give numbers about my classes or my general impression. Um, maybe I could do both. Yeah. It, the facilities are around, as my best guess, 80% minority, mostly African-American. And... That's the state. The federal prison is more representative of the population. Right. Because those tend to be more white-collar crimes. You know, in my classes, I have, out of 15 students, maybe two Caucasian individuals. The remainder are African-American for the most part. Maybe a few um, Hispanic, Latino folks peppered in. Do you know what sort of crimes these people committed to put Uh, them there? Yeah, it's Common question. Yeah. Um, and I divert it as quickly as possible. Right. <laughs> I will say that's not something we're interested in. That's not a piece of information that we pursue. They're college students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. And they're eager to learn. They're, they're yeah. deprived of their college years. Right. Precisely. Precisely. Um, you know, we're, we're coming to them with the, with the classroom. But, yeah. Um, they're meeting us as students and we treat them as such. Can you tell us a little bit about the eagerness of these students? How do they participate in your class? Mm -hmm. To be allowed to participate, that's actually a facility-dependent question. Mm -hmm. Um, Some facilities are more lax and any any Mm. student can participate. Other ones, there's all kinds of entrance exams and all that. Regardless, in general, the student body at all four facilities that I've worked at are very engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's most telling is that at the max, with older st- uh, students, 
um, much older than myself, you know, my, my father's age. Any given class is usually made up half of lifers. Those mm -hmm. are people that will never be released. Mm -hmm. They're as engaged as Princeton students, but in a different way, and certainly more engaged than my colleagues at University of Delaware. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so those are the two groups that I can satisfactorily compare. Yeah, how, how are they engaged in a different way than the students here? You taught at both. Right. It's <laughs> a university <laughs> and, yeah. and in, in prisons. Yeah. So. Um, students at Princeton, oh, how do I phrase this? <laughs> <laughs> how do you uh, phrase it nicely? How do I phrase it? No, you know, I actually, I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for students at Princeton. I don't think they're all gunning, grade hungry. I think that's actually the minority. Yeah. Um, if I'm being very honest. I, I know they get that reputation, but I, I hate to espouse and, and, and perpetuate stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> Students at Princeton are very concerned with making sure that they understand the information to, to a particular standard, to a particular standard that they think you have set. Mm. And I think they, gen they they do. They genuinely want to know that information, and but they but they equally want to know what the bar is. Right. The proverbial. What's going to be on the test? <laughs> right. I, I don't think it's so much what's going to be on the test necessarily as what I think they're practical. Right. They're like I want to yeah. know what I need to know for for this test and future tests and and future tests of my. Right. You know. Yeah. Um. You know. Not even just MCAT. Like you know. Further down. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, you could you could you could sum it up in that way, but I, I think that's missing some some critical features of, of how they behave, or what their pursuit of knowledge is, is is about. In the prisons, it's particularly at this max where they're where they're lifers. It's uh, they're they're trying to fill a gap. I think in the humanities classes, they are pursuing it more for this like oh, love of knowledge kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but because I teach science and math, really they're trying to fill a gap that in in their knowledge. I think a lot of them come to the class because they have time or they, they want to get, you know, they need it for a degree requirement. Yeah. But what they get out of the class and what they pursue the class for, um, particularly the science classes, is a desire to interact with the physical world in a more meaningful sense. I think the best example is this inmate, well, I just taught him about surfactants, right? Mm -hmm. These are soaps. These are things that can grab onto both oil and water. Yeah. And I said, that's basically what's happening when you wash grease off your hands. Um, yeah. You're using this chemical. And, you know, he was just elated yeah. by this explanation. Um, I think that sort of sums up what we're providing them and, and what they're seeking. Right. More so. Um, they're, they're, they're seeking an understanding of, of the world in a language called math. And they're seeking an understanding of the physical world through the scientific method. Yeah, yeah that's very inspiring. <laughs> you yeah. know, like to to think that people who are condemned to a life in prison that they still have this desire to to know everything about the world from whatever resource yeah. they I, they can. Yeah, yeah. I think you're one hundred percent right. And if you'll permit me, I'll go back to the Princeton students and say that. They're privileged to already have the ability to do that. Yeah. And I think that's why they pursue knowledge in a different way. Mm -hmm. They pursue encyclopedic knowledge of something that they think they want to pursue professionally. Mm -hmm. And these folks are seeking basic knowledge and, and ways of thinking. Given that you've seen uh, and interacted with these inmates, how do you think 
we on the outside can help them or how do you think that if there should be prison reform and how should that prison reform look like mm-hmm. well you got to get inside to do something <laughs> come inside to teach reentry is a huge thing too if you don't want to come inside what does a reentry mean a reentry is when a when an incarcerated person is released mm-hmm. um there's a lot of hoops to jump through to ensure that they don't get trapped in the criminal justice treadmill again. Right. So re-entry into society. Re-entry into society. Yeah. We sort of abbreviate it. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as practical suggestions for you on that front, I'm afraid I'm at a loss. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are plenty of programs, a lot of them through churches and such, um, that I've heard about but don't participate in. Yeah. And how do I see criminal justice reform, if yeah. not specifically prison reform? Right. What's my ideal version of it? Yes. Yeah. Is your question? Yeah. Um, if, if you are the dictator of the United States, <laughs> Steve Bannon, right? <laughs> right. Right. <sighs> I wish I had given this more thought. Um, I think I can't... There's, there's one part of my brain that wants to just scream unilateral abolition, but I know that that's not pragmatic. And I can think of baby reforms, of course. Mm-hmm. But, sure. <laughs> but, you know, bringing back the Pell Grants, right? Which is, you know, I think just de-demonizing the inmate and, and just removing the word criminal from our vernacular, yeah. basically. Um, and that's less tangible and less of a policy, but if we can, as a people, think of our fellow citizenry as someone who happened to get caught when they did something wrong rather than identify them by that single thing that they did, then I think we'd be in a lot better place and we'd be more willing to assist them. You know, I'm going to steal this from, I forget her last name, but her first name is Naomi. She's a professor here. Mm-hmm. Um, she studies criminal justice. My reform would be less, um, which is her reform, her suggestion mm-hmm. too. Um, and less policing, less incarceration, uh, just just less yeah. in general. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that will have wonderful effects in the long term. And, you know, her argument, which I'll just reiterate here, is if we pursue an agenda of less, then we are set free from temptation to suggest better or kinder versions of what is fundamentally an improper thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, and that's the nicest word I can use. <laughs> it's an inhumane thing to do. Yeah. To put someone in a cage. In, in Princeton in particular, uh, you were at this divestment meeting. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what your opinion about Princeton's divestment uh, initiative and also the university's response? <laughs> right, right. My opinion of the divestment initiative is that it's a fantastic idea from a PR perspective. <laughs> right. And the divestment um, initiative is... Yeah, the divestment initiative is the uh, calling upon the University Resources Committee to withdraw any investments they have in 11 specific companies that are associated with incarceration in some form, um, holding illegal immigrants prior to deportation or companies that have exclusive contracts with the Department of Corrections to facilitate things like phone calls between loved ones that are incarcerated. And that's the divestment 
goal. I think it's a brilliant way to, to shine a light on this, on this massive, massive issue. Yeah. And I'll go back to Naomi's argument of less. It's not a silver bullet. Yeah. <laughs> but I use the word PR because I think prisons are intentionally located in rural areas off of very far away from major highways. Yeah. Not for the safety of the citizenry, but to keep this scar concealed. Yeah. Keep this atrocity kept away from the public view. Yeah. And any effort to bring it to the forefront can only promote civil discussion on on this issue and, and will hopefully allow people to have the same line of thinking that I did, which is, you know, is this the America that I believe? So, yes, yeah. di- divestment's amazing. Divestment is is very, very loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you uh, feel about the university's response? The university's response. Um, what, the, what, what was it? And how did the, the, the response from uh, President Icegruber was, we don't invest in these companies and we never have and we don't plan to. And what you're asking as a divestment initiative or as community members is that we place a filter such that we will, net, we will be banned from ever investing in these in the future. And just take us at our word that we don't do these things and that we won't in the future, right? Like, you know, the past is the best predictor of the, of the future. And when he initially said that, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize we knew that. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay. I, um, what's this whole divestment initiative about? Like, I, <laughs> right? Like, if we, if we knew that information going in, why did we, like, make such a big fuss about it? And then it became apparent to me 30 seconds later <laughs> That, that was the first time that anyone had ever heard that information. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that you know, the, the issue of being able to engage in conversations about divestment are so onerous. Um, yeah. And that, that this is really, that this is much larger than just prison divestment. This is having channels for the citizenry of Princeton University to be able to express their discontent through divestment. Those channels just don't exist. Um, yeah, it seems like one side holds all the cards here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the that's, other can only cry, that's unfair. That's, right, <laughs> right, right. That's great. Yeah, so the university response was limp, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess we're, we're going to go a long ways back. We discussed briefly that you are not a militant gay. Oh, uh, yeah, no. Uh, no, no. W- what is your stance on, on gay rights? As a white gay man who is more often than not assumed to be straight, one of my friends who also has those characteristics said that we have not lived in an easier time, which is true. <laughs> We are enjoying rights that we didn't fight for. Mm-hmm. Um, the right to marry. <laughs> the right to not be fired based on our sexual orientation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the, since that, now the torch has been passed down to us by that generation that did fight and die, especially at AIDS. We just need to be caretakers at this point, I, I would say. You think the fight is done? I don't think the fight is done. I think the fight for folks like myself is almost done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I come from the most privileged possible class. And it's kind of sad that, that we get to win battles when when the marginalized of, 
of the gay community are still struggling to win them. And so that's, a, that's an excellent point. And that, that's what I was going to say next, which is we need to now turn our attention to our brethren, as it were. Um, I don't know if brethren's the right word. That sounds very patriarchal. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but, but to our fellow LGBTQIA community members and fight for their rights. I, I, I have to admit that I don't, I don't do as much as I should on that front. But, but learning is, is an important aspect of that. And that's, that's what I'm doing currently. I'm just, I'm just sort of educating myself on the struggles that, that are faced by particularly trans folks. Yeah. You know, I mean, one in three uh, transgender persons will perish of murder. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... So I don't have to worry about that, <laughs> right? And I, and I yeah. feel privileged uh, as a result. And societal acceptance is happening very fast for certain groups, mm. right? Like yeah. affluent gay men, for example. <laughs> but it's not stagnant, if not going backwards, for um, particularly for these groups that are asking society to identify them for the first time. You know, the asexuals, um, genderqueer people... And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the simple, simple-mindedness, you know. You know, I've only had one occasion to sort of talk to someone with a completely different view on this, and I don't think there's opposition to it. I think there's just a preference to have things be more simple. This was a corrections officer. It's just like, you know, why can't it just be, why can't it just be male and female, you know? Why can't... Like God intended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not even, not even that, right? You don't even have to be religious. You just want gender to be simple and binary. It's a common human desire. <laughs> what do you think, in an ideal world, government should do for its people? Government is many things. Um, my roommate told me it's more of like a parent-child relationship, mm-hmm. in that you know they're the parent and the citizenry of the children. I tend to think of government as more of a first responder or something like that. They're there to either preemptively or after the fact smooth over the wrinkles mm-hmm. of, of society or, or sand over the patches of friction. So, needless to say, uh, with both parents working in government, ah, yes. right? like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you don't necessarily believe in quote-unquote small government. Things can be certain sizes if they're efficient. I... Uh, I'm a former employee of the federal government. I worked at the NIH for two years, so I am triply biased. <laughs> right. um, no, but I mean, I've, of course I've seen the, seen how the sausage is made and it is inefficient. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's no, these aren't conspiracy theories about, uh, about the lazy government employee. <laughs> as, as much as I'd like to say, you know, because my parents spent 20 years in private industry before they got to the government and that's uh-huh. that's why they've I, I believe that's why they've excelled in their positions in um, the state department mm-hmm. to come in with sort of business mentality and it sounds like I would be arguing for um, a sort of Trump as president like get somebody there in there with a the business mindset yeah but that's that's fundamentally against what the government is there to do the government is there to do the inefficient cost prohibitive things <laughs> that a society needs. Right? Yeah. 
building roads in areas where there's low traffic, et cetera, right. et cetera. Um, going to the moon. <laughs> going to the moon. Yeah, exactly. cancer. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Investing in big long-term projects that would drive a company into the ground Yeah. Um, if they were to take on such an endeavor. I believe that we need government to do these things. And uh, as, as far as the people who say that um, government is more of a hindrance in their life than a help, I invite them to travel overseas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and see what happens when that system deteriorates. Um, yeah. And the kind of impairment, impediments that that places on day to day livelihood when you can't use a road or you can't do etc. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we were tremendously privileged mm-hmm. with the high level of functioning government that we have. <laughs> Shocking as that statement. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes we tend to forget in all of this turmoil that America is the richest country in the world. <laughs> it's true. I mean, spe- speaking of functioning or non-functioning government, do you think our political system is functioning or not functioning? Or mm. how do you think it should be? I guess there are many components to the political system. Right. And I think the one that people like to pick out as non-function is, is the electoral system. Are you talking about the electoral college or for the presidency? Or are you talking Many things, about yeah, gerrymandering? Oh, okay. Comes to mind mm-hmm. and redistricting and all of that. You know, do the, the, the base question is, is the electoral system set up in such that it accurately conveys the will of the people? Yeah. And I got to give you an IDK on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not a political scientist, so I really don't know. Right. Um, I do know that overseas, you know, nobody wins with a a majority. Yeah. Um, And so as much as I admire aspects of European governance, you know, in some ways our electoral system is better. (laughs) Um, And that we do have a definitive majority every time we elect our representatives. I'm going to wrap up with just two very quick questions. Mm. One is, if you have a message for any elected official out there, uh, who would it be and what would you say? It would be for the distinguished senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. Please run for president in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people are counting on you. I think your vision to put the consumer first squares very nicely with our capitalist system. And uh, finally, can I get a commitment from you to keep being civically engaged? And what would you do to to be civically engaged in the coming next months and years? That I don't do currently. Yeah. Yeah. Or what you you currently do that we'll keep on doing. Yeah. The thing that I'm doing now, as thanks to you, is I'm registering to vote in the municipality that I live in, which I had never bothered to do before. I would just go home yeah. um, to my permanent residence in Delaware because it was always close enough. As glorious as the nomad life is, you need to shape the environment that you live in. Mm-hmm. You can do that through, through voting. So I will do that going forward. More significantly, possibly, possibly less significantly, I don't know. I'm going to pursue, my, my life pursuit, civic life pursuit, is to just the Gandhi aspect of be the change you want to see in the world. Right. Um, I think we really need to get incarcerated persons out of the treadmill that they're on mm-hmm. and um, take them from being a, 
a cash sink for society and make mm-hmm. them a cash surplus, right? Like make right. them productive, contributing citizens. And m- the best way I know how to do this is to improve STEM education in prisons. So that's the very specific goal of mine. The Prison Teaching Initiative uh, was the first group to get laboratory classes inside a prison outside of the state of California yeah. ever in the nation. I led an effort that got biology laboratories inside, and this was significant because, you know, this is the first time bringing in um, biological specimens and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think there is momentum for that. Mm-hmm and that there are huge dividends to be paid back to society through that effort. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where I'm focusing. Yeah. Civic engagement. <laughs> that's, that's very inspiring. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. Man. Yeah. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. <laughs> Same. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to another Voices of Votes episode. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave an awesome review on iTunes. If you live in or around Princeton and would like to share your voice on the podcast, please contact us at voices to votes at gmail.com. Special thanks to Frederick Grace for the artwork and Jamal Williams, aka DJ Motion Correct, for the music. We'll be back soon, so stay tuned.